You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 32. As we continue our series this morning called When the Righteous Suffer. For those who have joined us recently, we have been working our way through the book of Job since April of this year. And since we've taken a few weeks off, Timon was preaching in 1 Thessalonians the last two Sundays and we had New Member Sunday the week before that, let me just do a bit of review. Job, you could say, is the story of a good man who is also a great man. And that is a rare thing. You often meet great men and women who are not good, or you meet good men and women who are not great, at least not in the eyes of the world. Well, Job was both. Job was pious and he was powerful. Job walked in the fear of the Lord and he walked in the blessings of the Lord. Job was a humble man, but he was also called the greatest of all the people of the East. But the book of Job, as we get into the text, isn't about Job's greatness or his goodness. No, it is about how God took away his greatness and how that tempted Job to give up his goodness as well. I mean, for those who know the story, you know that in the first two chapters, Job lost everything. Job lost all his wealth. He lost all his servants. He he lost all 10 of his beautiful, God-fearing children in a single day. But it turns out that that was just the beginning. Shortly after he began to grieve and lament all that he had lost, His body was afflicted with loathsome sores, boils filled with pus from his head to his feet. He became hideous to the eye and he became desperate for relief, but all he had to provide him with that relief was shards of broken pottery with which to scrape his sores. His wife told him to curse God and die. Even his three friends who initially came to comfort him, ended up judging him and condemning him instead. Job, he he lost everything. But above all this loss, as great as all this loss was in his life, what he feared most was that he had lost God himself. The God he had given his life, his obedience, his worship to, that the God that he had served and trusted now seemed to have become cruel and unjust because Job was not a spiritual dualist where he believed that Satan sometimes gets his way and God sometimes gets his way. No, he, he was a proponent of the sovereignty of God and he knew that everything that he had received, he had received from the very hand of God himself. And this God had chosen to replace Job's blessings with curses for what seemed like no reason at all. It is in this context that the book of Job invites us to consider and ask several questions. There have been big picture questions like, why is there suffering in this world? Why isn't life fair? Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous 
languish. Is God really in control? And if God really is in control, is God good? Is God just? There have been practical questions as well, like how do we grieve well? And how do we come alongside those who are grieving and help them as they grieve? And how do we prepare ourselves for the day of suffering which is bound to come in our lifetimes? Now, most of these questions have been asked and at least partially answered as Job has dialogued with his three friends, but that part of the book of Job has now come to an end. Job is done speaking. And so are his friends. And for readers like us, it seems like the only thing that we're waiting for now is for God himself to speak. We are waiting for God to finally give us the definitive questions, the definitive answers to the questions that we've been asking all along. But instead of God, we get a young man named Elihu. We don't get God yet. We will get God in chapter 38. We'll get God next Sunday. But for this Sunday, we get this young man named Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram. Elihu has not been mentioned up to this point in the book of Job. And once he is done speaking, he will not be mentioned again. And this has prompted some scholars of the book of Job to call him either a false prophet or a form of comic relief. You know, the tone of Job has been so serious and dark up to this point that we need some laughter right now. And what better thing to laugh about than this young man who appears on the scene and thinks that he has all the answers to the questions that his elders have been debating and disagreeing on throughout this entire book. I mean, isn't that funny? This man hasn't lived long enough to know what it really likes to suffer. Nor has he studied long enough to know the theological answers. This man is nothing more than a brash youngling who is embarrassing himself in front of the grown-ups. But other scholars hold a different opinion. They see where Elihu and his speech are placed in the book of Job immediately before God himself speaks, and they say that Elihu functions kind of like John the Baptist functioned with the appearing of Jesus Christ. Before God arrives on the scene and speaks, he sends his messenger ahead of him to prepare the way of the Lord with a message of truth and repentance. And that is the view I have taken as well. That Elihu is not just version two of the foolishness and worldly thinking of the three friends of Job, wrapped up in a youthful package. He he brings something distinct to the conversation about suffering. And as we will see, he prepares us for what God will eventually say himself. Elihu may be young, but that is no reason to write him off. Think about all the prophets of God who were young, Joseph was young. David and Jeremiah were young. Even Jesus was a young man when he began his ministry and he received the the condescension, particularly of those who saw him grow up. 
Throughout salvation history, God has chosen both the old and the young to speak on his behalf. And he did that to prove that age alone does not make you wise. Age alone does not make you wise. Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10 says, what, age and experience is the beginning of wisdom? No, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Elihu captures this well in chapter 32, verses six to 10, when he says, I'm young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Elihu is speaking to Job and to Job's three friends, but he is also speaking to us. And he is saying, listen to me. If we listen to Elihu, then God's promise is that he will help us to understand what is right. Because Elihu doesn't ultimately speak on his own authority or on the basis of his own wisdom or experience. He speaks on behalf of God himself as a young prophet inspired by the Holy Spirit to lead us to God himself. And so the title of this sermon is The Wisdom of a Young Prophet. The Wisdom of a Young Prophet. I'm gonna highlight three lessons. There are many lessons in these six chapters that we don't have time to get into this Sunday. For today, we will only highlight three lessons that we learn from Elihu. First, Sin may not lead to suffering, but suffering may lead to sin. One of the fundamental mistakes that Job's friends made was that they thought they knew why Job was suffering the way he did. They they believed that they could trace the fruit of his suffering to the root of his sin. They believed that sin was what produced Job's suffering. When Job lost everything, they believed that God was only giving him what he deserved. But Elihu, he disagrees. And as we have seen throughout this series, God also disagrees. Elihu knows that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. There comes a time when the righteous suffer. And he speaks about that in chapter 36. He says, He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. And, and listen what he says in verse eight, if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, he continues on. But the point here is that Elihu understood that even the righteous could be bound in chains. Even the righteous could be caught in affliction. And that means that suffering is not always caused by our sin. Sometimes we suffer for no explainable reason at all. We we look at the fruit of suffering, we try to trace it to the root, and we don't know what that root truly is. And that is why, as you look at Elihu's speech, not once does he try to speculate about what Job must have done to deserve all this. He doesn't make any broad general statements about how bad of a sinner Job must have been. However, 
Elihu does issue Job correction. The difference between Elihu and Job's friends is that Elihu's correction is based on what he has heard from Job himself. The friends, their correction was based on what they were guessing that Job had done. Oh, Job, you must have been oppressing the poor. You must have been self-indulgently enjoying your wealth. You must have been turning away the, the widows and the orphans and not caring about those who are made in the image of God. And Job defended himself and he said, I, I, I cared for the orphans. I, I opened up my hands to the needy. That was not true. Elihu is more fair to Job. He, he only issues correction based on what he has seen himself and what he has heard with his own ears. Because even if Job's sin didn't produce suffering, Job's suffering produced sin. What, what Job has said in the aftermath of his innocent suffering has at times been sinful. Christopher Ashe puts it this way. It is not true that he is suffering because he has sinned, but it is true that because he is suffering, he has said some sinful things. These will need to be corrected. Now, what are some of those things? What are some sinful things that require correction? Well, Job has said in chapter nine, verse 23, that God mocks at the calamity of the innocent. When the innocent suffer, God thinks it's a joke. And that is not true. Job has also accused God of hating him in chapter 16. We know that's not true. We know based on chapters one and two of Job, God delights in Job. And he points to Job as his finest servant. Job has also said that God doesn't forgive sin, that God doesn't offer any hope, that God doesn't even do what is just. Those are all false sinful statements about God, and they need to be corrected. Job has also said some sinful things about himself. Job has, you could say, has become obsessed with proving that he is innocent and blameless and upright. He is presumed to know the hidden thoughts of God. He says, I know what's going on in God's mind. It's hatred. He, he mocks me. He has rejected me. Job has also failed to acknowledge that there are things that happen in this world under the providence of God that just aren't meant to understand. He presumes to be a man of finite capabilities who can understand the infinite mind of God. Verse two summarizes what's going on here well when it says, then Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because... He justified himself rather than God. That is the problem here. That, that Job is obsessed and consumed with the goal of declaring himself to be righteous, of justifying himself. And he has lost all sight of the believer's true desire, which is to show God to be righteous, God to be worthy of worship. And this made Elihu angry. In fact, when you look at the first five verses of chapter 32, four times Elihu is described as burning with anger. And that is right for him to feel. This is a righteous anger because Elihu had a holy zeal for
for the glory of God. He had such a burning passion to see God recognized as righteous, as good, as just, as wise, that any assertion that God was not these things made him angry. Some have criticized Elihu for his anger. They attribute his anger to youthful zeal or self-righteous judgment, but there's nothing in the text that would indicate that this anger was sinful. Now we know, if you've lived long enough, you know that anger often and most often tempts us to sin, but anger can also motivate us to do the right thing. Righteous anger can produce righteous action. And as we examine Elihu's speech, it certainly appears that he is righteously angry. Not once does he mock Job. Not once does he exaggerate what Job has said or done. He corrects him, yes, sometimes with strong words, but he never loses control. Unlike the three friends who lost it towards Job, he never loses it. This isn't personal for Elihu. Elihu is strong but measured. He is wise without being condescending as he responds to the sinful words spoken by this broken man. Now there's a challenge here for us, for those who suffer, whether you have suffered or you currently are in a season of suffering, this is a challenge to not just play the victim. To not just play the victim. It may be true that horrible things have been done to you that horrible things have been experienced by you. But it's also true that you can respond to those horrible things with horrible things of your own. If people have sinned against you, that tends to produce your sin against other people. If life hasn't turned out the way you wanted it to, it can lead you to doubt the goodness of God to complain about his providence that he has brought in your life, and you can spend more time thinking about what others have done to you and not enough time watching your own heart. And that is the challenge for those who suffer. As you suffer, as people do things that hurt you, that grieve you, that wound you, that were unfair, that were unjust. Your your temptation will be to put all your focus on what others have done and to be completely unaware of the slow but sure growth of sin in your own heart. Elihu's speech and his correction of Job reminds us that we cannot just play the victim. We must watch our own hearts The challenge for those who are helping those who suffer is that we must comfort, yes, but we also must correct. We can't just put our arms around those who cry and grieve and complain and say nothing. I mean, that that is one of the lessons of Job. When Job's three friends arrived, they did the right thing by sitting in silence with Job for several days and nights. They just grieved with him by the ministry of their presence. That was the right thing for them to do. And as soon as they opened their mouths, they started sinning against him. And they made his suffering worse than it was before. But their problem wasn't that they began speaking. Their problem was primarily that they began speaking the wrong things. There is a time to speak. There is a time to comfort, and there is a time to correct. And and wisdom helps us determine what time it is. That is what Elihu did for Job. 
And that is what we may have to do for others as well. Second lesson from Elihu. Justification is more important than relief. Justification is more important than relief. If you recall what Job's three friends said to him again and again, it was something along the lines of this. Job, if you just own up to what you've done, if you just repent of your secret sins, then God's gonna take away all your suffering and he's gonna bless you beyond your wildest dreams. I mean, it's prosperity gospel theology. But, but behind that is an assumption that what Job needs most is relief. He needs relief from his suffering and Job's three friends offered solutions that would provide him with relief. Their focus, as much as they talked about God, their focus was on the blessings of God rather than the person of God. But Elihu's desires are purer. He says in chapter 33, verse 32, if you have any words, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you. Elihu's desire was to justify Job. To be justified is to be declared righteous. To stand before your judge in, the, in, in God's courtroom and to hear the words, not guilty. That's what Elihu wants for Job. He wants him to be justified, to be declared righteous before God because he knew that none of the blessings in the world that he could receive or enjoy could compare to the sweet declaration that he is not guilty. Job's problem was not that he wanted to be justified. His problem was that he wanted to justify himself. He wanted God to declare him righteous on the basis of his own righteousness instead of on the basis of God's righteousness. But Elihu knew that the only way that Job could be justified and declared righteous was if God had mercy on him. And he says that in chapter 33, verses 23 to 28. He says, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then... Man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. Elihu has imagined and envisions a, an angelic being in heaven, a mediator who will speak to God on Job's behalf. And if you've been following this series, you know that Job had the same hope. Job has called this angelic being his witness in heaven. He has called him his redeemer who lives. He has called him his arbiter who will place his hand on man and God and bring them together. Job's friends didn't know about this mediator. Not once do they talk about this heavenly mediator, but this young man, this man speaking as a prophet of God, he knew not only that this mediator exists, but this mediator is merciful. This mediator would cry out to God, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. I have found a ransom that will set him free 
from sin, from Satan, and death. And I will bring him into the joy of God's presence. Who is this merciful mediator? Well, Elihu did not know because he spoke at a time when the Old Testament had not fully shown us the full revelation of the gospel, but we know. We know who this merciful mediator is. It is Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man. Jesus is the mediator. But the amazing thing is that he is also the ransom. He is the ransom that he has found to deliver sinners like Job. Jesus said, the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life, his life as a ransom for many. Oh, my friends, this is, this is good news. This is good news for all who put their trust in Christ, that your mediator is in heaven, and he has found your ransom. It is the ransom of his own life, his blood shed on the cross. This mediator, he doesn't just speak on your behalf. No, this mediator has died on your behalf so that sinners like us could be set free from sin, Satan, and death. Elihu may not have known how all this was going to work out, but the Spirit gave him just enough revelation to know that our only hope of being justified before God was through the merciful work of this mediator. That is what Elihu wanted most for Job. And that is what we should want most also for those who suffer. The greatest need of those who suffer is not relief from their earthly suffering. It is salvation from eternal suffering. And that only comes if we are justified through faith by grace. We must be justified, not on the basis of our righteousness, our merits, our good works, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Sometimes that means that we need to suffer. That means that we have to suffer long and suffer Hard because our suffering can often be the very means by which we become aware that we cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. Only God can justify us. It is when life becomes unbearable that we finally cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. In one of the most memorable verses in this entire book, Elihu says in chapter 36, verse 15, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. You notice what it says. You understand what he's saying. He doesn't say that God delivers the afflicted from their affliction, though the Bible says that elsewhere, and thank God that he delivers us from our affliction, but here it says that he delivers the afflicted by their affliction. He doesn't open our ears despite adversity. He opens our ears by adversity. It is by the suffering that we face that our ears are open to hear the merciful voice of God calling us to trust him. My friends, our greatest need is not to be delivered from our affliction because our affliction may be the very means of our deliverance. That is why Elihu isn't interested in finding solutions to Job's suffering. He's not interested just in giving Job 
worldly temporary relief. He wants Job to learn from the suffering that God has ordained for him so that he could be justified. Now listen, that does not mean that we never do anything to help alleviate the worldly temporary sufferings of other people. This is not what that means. It is a joy and it is a wonderful thing to come alongside the suffering of others and to help them to bear their burdens. But when the suffering remains, when God does not answer our prayers for relief, we can understand why. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and he opens their ear by adversity. Third lesson, God still speaks when he seems silent. God still speaks when he seems silent. One of Job's biggest complaints has been that God doesn't seem interested in answering him. He has spoken at length, chapter upon chapter upon chapter, and all he's heard in response is his three miserable comforters. God seems not to care by his silence. If you've gone through long seasons of suffering, you know what that's like. You know what it's like to look for a job for several months and to pray for some provision and not to have any doors open? You know what it's like to pray for a loved one who has rebelled against God, who's living as a prodigal, and they're still as rebellious as ever? You know what it's like to cry out to God for healing from chronic pain and headaches and migraines and back pain, but you still wake up as miserable as ever? How do we go on trusting the Lord? when it seems that God is silent. Well, Elihu says that we have to learn to listen. We have to learn to listen because even when it seems that God is silent, he's still speaking. He's still speaking. He may not speak in the ways that we expect and he may not say what we hope he would say, but he is still speaking. And we can hear him if we would just listen. Elihu gives us three ways that God still speaks when he seems to be silent. First, in chapter 33, verses 13 to 16, he says, why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? That is, why do you accuse God of being silent? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. To apologize to my cessationist friends because it seems that Elihu is a charismatic. He reminds Job that sometimes God speaks when we least expect him to. When we are lying in bed, when we are falling asleep, when we have fallen into deep slumber and our rational faculties have turned off. God speaks to us in dreams and visions. Now this can obviously be abused, all right? It has been abused by false prophets and teachers. It has led people astray. Sometimes those who say that they possess special revelation from God have received that revelation straight from the pit of hell. But if we hold up our dreams and visions to the final authority of scripture, we can still benefit from them. Dreams and visions, they are not the normative way of God speaking to us. Only scripture plays that role, but they do have a part to play. I mean, we often hear about people who live in closed countries, 
countries that do not permit gospel work to take place. And yet, people are being converted because Jesus appeared to them in a dream or vision and revealed himself to them as the resurrected Christ and the savior of their souls. It still happens. And just because we haven't experienced it as much as we assume it should happen doesn't mean that it doesn't happen at all. God still speaks in dreams and visions. But he doesn't always say what we want him to say. I mean, what did Job want God to say? He wanted God to explain why this became his lot in life. But Elihu explains in verse 17, the reason why these dreams and visions come is so that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. Job wanted answers, but God wanted to humble him. God doesn't always speak in the ways that we expect, and he doesn't always tell us what we want him to say. But he does speak, and we must be prepared to listen. Second, God speaks to us in our pain. In the next verse, in chapter 33, verse 19, he says, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. Man is rebuked by God with pain. If we say we want God to speak to us in our pain, we miss the fact that pain is God's message to us. C.S. Lewis made this famous in his book, The Problem of Pain, when he wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so if you're in pain, and you're thinking that God is silent, you need to be aware that God is speaking to you. In fact, God is shouting at you, and what he's saying is that you, you are weak, you are limited, you are completely powerless to do anything apart from the grace of God, but he, he, oh he, God is not weak. God is not limited, God is not, not, Finite. He is strong, he is infinite, and he is good. So you must trust in him, not in yourself, and he will accomplish powerful things in your life and through your life. God speaks to us in our pain. And third, and most significantly, God speaks to us in creation. Notice how many times this passage references God's voice in chapter 37, verses one to five. Elihu says, at this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and is lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice He does great things that we cannot comprehend. And this reflection continues throughout chapter 37. And Elihu's point is that creation speaks. It speaks on God's behalf and it says, look at the lightning that flashes across the sky. 
Listen to the rumbling that fills the silence of the night. Look at the clouds dropping snow and hail and rain. Look at the beasts that go into their lairs and their dens. Look at the whirlwind and the frozen waters and the skies. Look at the sunrise. Look at what God has done. And tremble. Tremble. Let your heart tremble at the infinite power and wisdom of God. Elihu knew that this is what Job needed most. He needed to think less about the suffering of man. And he needed to think more about the holiness of God. Because when we've been searching for answers, we want to understand why. We need to understand just who we are talking about. And just who we are talking to. We are talking to a holy God who is far beyond anyone or anything that we could imagine. God is not like us. He is not a man. Nor is he a supersized, superpowered version of a man. He is God. He is holy other. The one who created the universe who sustains all things by the word of his power, who ordains and governs everything that happens, from the clouds in the sky, to the hairs on your head, to the worms in the ground. Everything exists under his sovereign and wise rule. So, who are we to think that we can understand him? And so Elihu concludes his speech in verses 23 to 24. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice in abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Now we live in what has been called a therapeutic age where counselors and therapists do much good. They help us to find the pathway to peace by understanding ourselves. There is a place for that. That can be so incredibly helpful. And I'm grateful that our church has counselors and therapists who help us to understand our history, our feelings, our circumstances. That is helpful. But people do not just need therapists and counselors. People need prophets. They need prophets who will declare to them the word of God and declare the mystery and beauty of God's transcendent power. They need people who will say what Elihu tells Job in verse 14. He says, hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Stop trying to find all the answers. Stop trying to rationalize your pain. Stop trying to see how your childhood messed everything up for you. Start considering the wondrous works of God. There is a time and a place for counseling and therapy, for understanding what we've suffered and learning practical tools to to cope with it. But if we are to overcome our suffering, and if we are to endure our suffering when God does not remove our suffering from us, we need to stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Especially, especially his most wondrous work of all, the cross. The cross, that wonderful cross on which the Prince of Glory died. 
where our merciful mediator took our sin and suffering upon himself. And when we do, we can say with Paul, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so will you stop and consider the wondrous works of God today? Will you stop trying to find all the answers to rationalize your pain, to make sense of everything that has happened to you? If you do, then your heart will tremble with delight and your soul will be fortified for the trials that await you and your hope will be sustained until the day when you see this merciful mediator face to face and live in his presence forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we need this wisdom given to this young prophet for our good and for your glory. To not want what the world wants, which is mere temporary earthly relief, but to want something greater, something deeper, something only Christ can offer. Everlasting life. Pleasures at your right hand forevermore. Forgiveness of our sins. I pray that that would be our hope as we suffer and as we help those who suffer, that we also would be able to see our suffering as light and momentary as we await the great day of salvation when your justice and your righteousness become visible and tangible as Christ makes all things new. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.